Hello, this is not the beginning of one of my little pre-conversation introductions, but the very first ad in the history of historically thinking. If you listen to the conversation that follows, you'll hear me talk with Jason Pack, international man of mystery and, bless his heart, what can only be described as a historically thinking superfan. He's also the co-host of an excellent new podcast called Disorder. It examines the increasing chaos of our times, the rise of hybrid warfare, cyber misinformation, transnational crime, corruption, and anti-immigrant sentiment. How, fueled by this, neopopulism has spread, further fueling a backlash against free markets, international organizations, experts, and globalization. The topics aren't cheerful ones, but they are important and worth your reflection. And it helps that Disorder features not only storytelling, reporting, and great conversations, but solutions and suggestions for what can be done. Find and follow Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, today's international system is like a ship adrift during a pandemic, with the captain lost to the virus and the most capable and conscientious members of the crew self-isolating in their cabins. The deck is now teeming with contagious megalomaniacs. Rather than collaborate, each thinks he knows how to steer the ship better than the admirals. That is the cheerful first paragraph of Jason Pack's book, Libya and the Enduring Global Disorder. Jason Pack is a NATO Foundation senior analyst, author of Libya and the Enduring Global Disorder, co-host of the new Disorder podcast, an international man of mystery, kidnapped twice in Syria, led wine tours in Georgia, a backgammon champion, and most importantly, a longtime listener to Historically Thinking. He's here to talk about his new book, or his older book now, Libya, the new podcast, and Fine Georgian Wine. Jason, welcome to Historically Thinking. Yeah, it's a dream to be on. I mean, my life you might have, have pathetic, had some mystery, You have pathetic but, dreams. Pathetic dreams. Yes, yeah. my life might have had some mystery, but now I'm really experiencing wish fulfillment to be on my favorite podcast, Historically Thinking. Uh, well, okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. As, as I've said to you, know, I come from a long line of German and Italian peasants who are very self-defensive about you know compliments. So it's I'm just going to say thank you. Uh, that's the polite thing, best thing to do. So let's talk about your crazy life. Uh, you went to Williams College. We won't ask you why you bothered to do that. Uh, you got a biology degree. 9-11 happens. And you say, hey, what's a biology major from Williams going to do? Learn Arabic. Go from there. Sure. I guess I was always a bit of a rebel against my folks in that, they were in the computer industry in the early 60s when computers were on punch cards, and they made a decent living at it, and they liked it intellectually. But at the dinner table, hearing too much about to-go loops and uh, Fortran and Pascal, I was like, I don't want to do this. I wanted to do something which I thought was going to help people, and I understood that to be medicine. Then my senior year at Williams, and I did grow up in Manhattan, the southern part of Manhattan, yeah. the 9-11 happened. I wasn't super shocked because I had been aware not only of terrorism in Israel, but a lot of perceptions of America abroad. But I got the sense that this was a seminal moment. Everything was going to be different. I should somehow help out. 
if W. Bush had not been president, I might have joined the army. I have that kind of civic mindedness about me. But I didn't think that that was the right go, given the constellation here in America. So I was like, you know, screw it. What should I do? I moved to Beirut when I had graduated Williams. I thought that I needed a beard, showing you how little I knew about the Middle East. And, you know, I didn't have a mustache, so it was like one of those Amish, um, you know, long bar handle kind of things. And within three days of being there, everyone was saying, are you a Shia cleric? And I realized that he needed to shave it off. And it turned out, of course, Beirut was a horrible place to learn Arabic because everyone speaks English and French. Even the, even the Shia speak a bit of French. So one thing has led to another. And I would say my cynicism has reasserted itself. In other words, I thought I could make a difference in shaping Anglo-American and Western policy making through becoming an expert, but I don't think that that actually works. So uh, I've had to reevaluate many times how to bring this to fruition. So how did you get kidnapped twice in Syria? And do you still have sphincter control? Because I, I wouldn't after that. I would... <laughs> I would just, things would just happen downstairs just when I heard a dog bark or a door slam. No, no. These, these were not particularly traumatic experiences. I'm, 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 I'm making a little bit of a joke here. Let me try that one again. Sorry. Um, (laughs) First time I've heard some good potty humor on historically thinking. Well, Apple, I can never remove my explicit rating. So I've determined to like own it. Okay. Maybe maybe we'll have to realize that in advance with disorder. Yeah. So I applied for a Fulbright to Egypt, which I was awarded. And even though my topic was about why Gladstone, a little Englander, ended up annexing Egypt, because I was always interested in seeing the long engagement of Western societies, particularly the Anglo-French empires with the Middle East as the precursor to how American policy would be misunderstood and how to not repeat those same errors. I was shocked once I was on the ground in Egypt to have the Egyptians deny me what they called my research clearance. This meant that I couldn't have my Fulbright, that Fulbright essentially, although the funding is congressional, the countries, you know, they host the Fulbright scholars and they, they vet them, meaning their secret police do whatever. You know, if you if you said you were going to study political Islam in Egypt, you'd never get your Fulbright. That was one of the reasons I chose this interesting historical topic that I cared about, but they still blocked me. That might have to do with my being from New York. It might have to do with, you know, it being imperialism, blah, blah, blah. I got my grant transferred to Syria. I didn't know much about Syria. I didn't want to do French empire because the access to the sources was going to be more difficult for me. But I found myself on the ground in Damascus in early 2004. I didn't have friends. I winged together this new research topic of looking at how Leon Blum, the first socialist prime minister of France, worked with the Alawites. And this is an interesting topic with historical resonances to now, given that there's a genocidal Alawite regime that control Syria, how that came about. And it's just, it's, and it's fascinating. Even, you know, I remember Michael McCormick in Byzantine history pointing out how Francois Mitterrand was always interested in Lebanon, which uh, a fascination, which he said is crazy when you think about it, that French socialists have always had this 
going back, but through Leon Blum, they're connecting themselves to like French, the French crusading states, you know, and the sort of idea of outre-mer and, you know, having a, and that France is somehow the superintendent of these, of the, some of these peoples in the Middle East. It is, it's a fascinating historical legacy. For sure. And it ties into French domestic politics Mm -hmm. in that on the right, they've always been more Catholic and more aligned with these overseas Catholics, meaning Lebanese Maronites, as well as Syrian Christians Mm -hmm. in general. And Leon Blum wanted to shake that up. He wanted to switch to working with the Sunnis and the nationalists and away from the coalition of the minorities, Mm -hmm. which included the Druze and the Ismailis as well. Um, However, long story short, I was in Syria. I had a friend who was on a Fulbright in another Middle Eastern country come and visit me. I happened to break my toe. The Franciscans put me in a cast all the way up to my thigh. But, you know, what are you, what, what you going to expect? They were not exactly having X-ray machines. It was a 19th century style monastic hospital. You got to be safe. And you got you to take care of all the possibilities. When we were at the Mahatta in Aleppo, meaning the kind of train cab station, the other people who wanted to get to Beirut were being shuttled into other cabs so that I would be overcharged to have to buy out all the seats in this one cab. Long story short, when we got in the cab, the driver picked up someone who had not paid, and then they were talking in a language that I couldn't understand. It was Kurdish. We chatted with them. They talked about how much they loved Ochilan. They said the only good Turk was a dead Turk. How much would we like to contribute to the cause of Kurdish liberation? We contributed, but even though we had contributed, they drove us up the side of a hill in Lebanon where there was drilling equipment that they had smuggled into Lebanon illegally. Um, On the side of the road, we got out of the car. Guys came with AK-47s. We sat down. My buddy who didn't speak any Arabic is like, what's going on? I said, they're going to make us mint tea. Don't worry about it. We're just going to chat about the nature of the Kurdish state. This is all going to be resolved very quickly. Tragically, back in those days in 2004, a Syrian Nokia flip phone, cell phone, you know, of that old variety, didn't have signal in Lebanon. As soon as you crossed the border, you had no signal. So I was truly stranded on the side of this hill um, slightly north and east of Lebanese Tripoli on the way to Bishadri on that road. And we came to a understanding, which is that there was an ATM in Beirut. And I said, you know, we only have these few hundred bucks on us, but there is the magical Jihaz Filusi, the money machine, which is what ATMs are still called in Arabic. Um, and if we could go to Beirut, to the very center, to what's called Solidaire, we could go to this thing, the Jihaz for Lucy, the magical money machine, and then we could make a greater contribution. Mm. Um, long story short, this is something that they accepted because we had, in theory, given them the money that we already had. A few hours later, we did go to the center of Beirut, but in Solidaire, that's not only where the Lebanese parliament is, but there's that beautiful haagen store there and tons of gendarmerie. And I had instructed my buddy in, in French, knowing that these were Iraqi Kurds, they weren't going to be able to speak French, you know, that we were going to crie gendarmerie, gendarmerie, when we arrived in the square. And fortunately, the Lebanese gendarmerie did come. We never ended up paying. We never got to the cash machine. 
we got saved by the Lebanese guards. And that's the only kidnapping story I'm going to tell on this program because it would, you know, we wouldn't get to any of the history no, if we uh, you talked about the other one. The second is not so nice, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Uh, so let's uh, backgammon. I even clicked on a link and read a couple of your articles about backgammon, and I still don't know what I was reading. Um, uh, is that backgammon? Is that like go? Is we we should? I, I'm curious if there's any relationship between backgammon and international policy in your head, and between you know the types of game theories applied to backgammon and as they apply to international policy. But how did you come to backgammon? Is this a long time fascination? So before I tell the story about how I got into backgammon, which also has some silly twists and turns, I think something unites my passions from biology to history, backgammon and Georgian wine. I'm really interested in cause and effect, Al, and I think you are as well. Mm -hmm. And I got into history out of the idea that if we understand decisions that were taken in the Kedal say they thought this about the Alawites, then Leon Blum reversed it, and then we ended up with this situation where the Alawites were overrepresented in the military and they had a coup in, you know, post-colonial Syria. <laughs> I was disappointed in my graduate studies, not only at Oxford and Cambridge, but pretty much my graduate studies in their entirety, in that history, the way it's done now, is not really about cause and effect, which is seen as too much diplomatic history and great man history. I have no problem with bottom-up history and social history because those can also be cause and effect. But a lot of the ideological history we do is these days in graduate school about giving a pastiche, reading against the grain of the archive. It's not really focusing on decisions. But what interests me about history is decisions because I want to have it have lessons for our current policymakers. This is what can happen if we side too much with the Saudis or the Emiratis and we get pinned into being their essentially regional pawn where rather than being the great power, the Emiratis and the Saudis use America to promote their regional influence. And this is something that clearly the Israeli right has already done. Well, we can find lessons about that from how the Lebanese Christians, rather than doing France's bending and helping France in its regional ambitions, they came to see French power as something that they could use to solve their local desires. So I'm interested in cause and effects and decisions. Backgammon, as well as winemaking, I think to understand them properly, you need to really think about cause and effect. If, if I do this and he rolls a low number, what happens? If I make this prime and he rolls a high number and I block him, maybe he can run out of timing. Um, so yes, in my life, I am very intellectually interested in the whole cause and effect thing. And I see that as, as at the core of Western civilization, as opposed to some of the roots of, say, Asharite thought in Islam. Maybe you know um, the Tahafut al-Falsafa, which I feel like that's something that you would have talked about on this podcast, <laughs> and Ghazali. Um, there are both Eastern and Islamic ways of thinking, which are not about Western linear cause and effect. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to bring that to my hobbies as well as my writing and popular punditry. Well, I said we'll talk about wine as at the towards the end, but I can see there are the biology and the history and the just a sense of place uh, 
Georgia, however you got there, uh, but that all those coming together to be really make you passionately interested in something like wine. For sure. And I guess I owe the listeners a, a story. Backgammon. Sure. I was a graduate student in Jerusalem and the students and the professors went on strike, which was, it's a really great tradition. We should have this in America. And I would play backgammon with one of my lang- language professors and we didn't know much about it. You know, we're playing Middle Eastern Tawila, meaning, you know, you roll the pieces on a wooden board. They make noise. You move them around like you do when you're smoking hookah in cafes. And I had done this in Syria as well, you know, smoking hookah, learning Arabic, throwing dice with your hands. When we got to a position which turned out to be a back game, three anchor back game, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, but the guy who was in the back game won. It seemed to us as beginners that, why would he win if he was far behind in the race? We said, what if we every night at 2 a.m., you know, played from this position multiple times? Because we didn't have any school for a month. The students and the teachers were on strike. And what we determined is that the guy who was in the back game would tend to win quite a lot. This was a primitive rollout. And it turns out that in the 1960s, the top gamblers had understood that the way to study a position was to play from that position many times, called a hand rollout. And it works even better if you know you start one game rolling a 1-2, and then the next game rolling a 1-3, and the next game rolling a 1-4, and you analyze the, the decision tree. Um, we're going so, to we're gonna have to provide lots of ex- explanations in the show notes. I'm just warning you listeners, because I, like you, I'm hearing words. I know what they are individually, but the sentences are confusing to me. Go on. Go on, Jason. Go on. Sure. Well, we had discovered a primitive rollout, and I began to study the game. Of course, I bought one book. <laughs> Oh, oh, I forgot actually the best part of this story. My buddy, Amir, said, no one has ever done this before. I bet you there are no books on backgammon. I stupidly made the bet that there would be no books at the university library. So I lost because there were only backgammon history books. There were no how to play backgammon books. But of course, it's like chess. There are hundreds of books about how to play it and illustrated matches and whatever. I lost the bet, but won the war. I discovered this game. I bought all the books. I thought I was decent. And then, of course, when I was back in Manhattan, I saw people in Union Square playing. Uh, I got hustled. I lost a lot of money because, of course, I was still a beginner. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And um, my competitive juices were were sparked or whatever. And, um, yeah, the rest is history. I got on the tournament scene, and I'm very interested in cash backgammon and also gambling kind of as a metaphor for life. I think backgammon is – a much better metaphor than chess or poker or, for how yeah. actual decisions in real life are made. Because of the because of the dice? Not only. Um, obviously, life isn't like chess. The best people don't make the most money or get to influence policy. You know, a lot of people who are worse win and make money. Um, it's not completely like poker because it's not about bluffing people and you can't not at all see their cards. In life, we can see other people's cards. Like in backgammon, you can see their pieces, but you may misunderstand them. Um, I think that the interplay of skill and luck, psychology, and uh, kind of strategic look ahead, it's a really good simulacrum for, for life and war, for why Putin thought he was going to win in Ukraine and didn't. Um, yeah, I, I think, again, the cause and effect and looking at history through cause and effect is 
is a nice metaphor. We need to have a, probably a whole episode on cause and effect because I'm tending these days, as I'm getting old and cynical, well, but that would be news to some, like my sister will probably cough at the idea that I was once not cynical. Uh, but I think I'm just, I'm happy if I can just get to correlation. Cause effect might be just asking too much. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm pretty happy if we can establish correlation. But let's talk about Libya. How did you first become interested in Libya from the very moment of uh, the the revolt, the revolution against Gaddafi? Or? No, no, it long predates that. Wow. Um, I was at Oxford trying to do a defil on Syria feeling. on the yeah. topic I've mentioned, which is Lamb Blum's policy towards the Alawites in the mandate period in the 1930s. But I realized that probably the academy wasn't going to be for me. Not enough cause and effect. Probably too many angels can dance on a peer-reviewed pin. And I made it known that I would be willing to work for a consulting firm. Um, I got recruited by a firm. I assumed that the job would be in Dubai or Abu Dhabi because 99% of them were. But the firm that hired me sent me to be their man in Tripoli. And that was in the late Qaddafi period. Uh, yeah, I flew private jets to Libya in uh, 2008. Um, I saw the regime from the inside. Of course, I never got paid. And the firm that I worked for then went bankrupt when the Libyans didn't pay. And what, what, yeah. I, what was the late regime like? Because, I mean, like a lot of like a lot of people, I was as a as a very young Cold Warrior, I was tuned into Libya until like 1989, 1991. Right. And where Gaddafi was just sort of, you know, a crazy he was like the North Korea of, of North Africa, and, and I guess from this, if you're looking at it from the Soviet perspective, kind of a useful, crazy person. But of course, he has a different view of himself, and there's a different view from within Libya of what Libya was. Well, he was only crazy like a fox. In other words, I think yeah. that his ideology was coherent and his actions were completely in, in step with that ideology. Mm -hmm. But there was a North Korea element. The regime was hermetically sealed. After the Berlin disco bombing in 1986, Ronald Reagan called him the mad dog of the Middle East. We bombed Tripoli trying to decapitate the regime. We, bam we bombed the Bab Babelazizia compound, but either the Italians or the Maltese tipped off Gaddafi and he survived. Um, then the sanctions that were imposed from 1992 to 1999 were blanket UN sanctions. They were the most hermetically sealing sanctions that had you know, ever existed in human history. And Libya went backwards 20 or 30 years. People couldn't study foreign languages. They couldn't travel abroad. By 1999, he was already not supporting terrorism, and the regime tried to have an opening up. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you would have heard of Musa Kusa, his spy master. He met with Martin Indyk in Switzerland, and that began a process whereby first Clinton and then W was initiating a detente with the Qaddafi regime. And the late regime period was a wild west. You had this hermetically sealed regime trying to open up economically without opening up politically. And it was predictable that perestroika and glasnost would lead to regime overthrow because you can't just magically open up economically without opening up politically because opening, in, opening up economically means satellite TVs, people getting new opinions, also new products and wealth standards. So it was an exciting time to be in Libya. Unfortunately, because of the way in which the regime 
tried to control what foreigners could do what and who could get paid and how, they didn't benefit maximally from the kind of economic reforms that they claimed to want to initiate. And you were there at, literally at the end of an age. Gaddafi had come to power in, what, 69? Correct. Um, so it quite a long period was about to come crashing to pieces around everyone's ears. And one thing I want to say about living in Libya is it wasn't like Syria or Egypt, obviously, or even Iraq. Libyans were afraid to talk about political opinions, whereas in Syria, if you were in some guy's cab, they would tell you what they thought, that they disliked the regime, that you know, non-Alawites weren't getting good jobs, that whatever. And in Libya, people would not. They would say, everything is great here. The brother leader is amazing. And ask the question that you'd hear a lot, Libya, Mia, Mia, and Mia, Mia means 100 out of 100. And you'd be like, yeah, Libya is great. And the guy would be like, that's great. This is the greatest country on earth. It had that North Korean Stalinist ideological purity aspect to it, whereby even in private spaces, like you could be up in the Berber Mountains, the Jabal Nafusa, and people would not really want to criticize the regime or tell you what was on their mind. And it was also a place that was far less literate and far more cut off from things than Syria, because Syria, you know, Aleppo and Damascus were the number two and three cities in the Ottoman Empire. They were cities of three or 400,000 in 1900. Tripoli was a fishing village of 12,000 souls, mostly illiterate in 1900. So this was a place that, you know, once the oil wealth hit it, a lot of dislocations were going on. So it's like a, it was the, the resource curse. There was a resource curse in Libya that there wasn't in Syria. And there's also, would it be fair to say that Libya by 1969, by 2008, um, Syria's always been, well, I just you know talked with Adrian Goldsworthy about the Rome versus Persia. Uh, Syria, everybody was there. You know, Armenians, Georgians, I mean, all these various Caucasians, pe peoples and tribes, and now the Alawites. I mean, everybody is in Syria and always has been. And Libya is less cosmopolitan, I mean, for lack of a better term. Of course. The Levant has been at the heart of civilization. That's where the ancient civilization, writing was probably first invented in Ugarit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, writing not of the cuneiform Sumerian kind, but of the writing character writing. Uh, syllabic writing was invented in Syria. Mm -hmm. um, yes, Libya is not cosmopolitan. It's a degree of a backwater. But even relative to other oil countries like, I don't know, Saudi, the Emirates, Oman, those have had continuity ever since they signed treaties with the British in the 18th century in the Omani case or 19th century when it comes to the Trucal states or Kuwait. They've had the same ruling family and those ruling families have become very sophisticated and literate and international. Libya has had many regime inversions. One, there's no one preponderant tribe or grouping, but then just many, many regime inversions. Who the Italians opposed, the British supported. Who the Italians worked with, the British during the BMA period opposed and put down. Then during the kingdom period, you had the rise of certain families working with the Senussi monarchy. Qaddafi, of course, chucked those families out. He brought in yet other tribes and families. And since 2011, we've had four or five mini inversions of power. And that means that there is no real elite. And that differs, I would say, from any other Arab country. And is probably more like a North Korea style situation, whereby the Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un 
dynasty. They don't really come from an elite tradition. And this is problematic when it comes to having governance institutions and really fearing outsiders and fearing expertise and all that. That's fascinating. So you were there for the, that fin de siècle, the end of the age. Uh, and then you watched, were you there for the collapse as well? Uh, I mean, or, or, did you, or were you watching that from abroad and maybe making dashes in and out? Both. Yeah, I guess making dashes in and out. Um, I had already moved back to the U.S. and was first running something in D.C. called the U.S. Libya Business Association. Then I was back in Oxford. Um, I did get to go to Tripoli in September, first week of September 2011, and the city had fallen on August 20th, 2011, and that was quite exciting. Um, It was a time of great optimism, and many Libyans were on the same page, and There had not really been Islamic and Islamist capture of the uprisings. But, of course, this was a multipolar uprisings. There was an uprising of civil society activists. There was an uprising of Misrata. There was an uprising of Islamists. And there wasn't a coherence of how to put them together. Essentially, when you have leaderless uprisings, as we've seen now throughout the Arab Spring, it's really difficult to create governance from that. So combine that with the flawed economic institutions that characterize Qaddafi in Libya, but have continued post-Qaddafi. And you have the recipe for a highly dysfunctional structures that you know, have, have left Libya in its current position. It essentially has zero governments, even though they call it two governments. And it has uh, an economic system, which is like looking at an Escher painting. You know, Petrol is five cents a liter and electricity is subsidized and free, and the militias smuggle things abroad, and tomatoes are grown at nine times the price that it would cost to import a tomato from Italy. Yeah, you can imagine. Yeah. So I'm unclear on on events here, but um, I I did notice as you sent me the book and you had said nice things about the podcast, but I wasn't clear on what the podcast had meant to you. Now I'm looking at the the epigram, and it's you're saying Polybius of Megalopolis. And I'm thinking, well, most people just call him Polybius, but I think in my podcast about it, when I interviewed Steel Brand, I called him Polybius of Megalopolis, which I did for a very specific reason. I had been thinking a lot about well, in a previous conversation with with Paul Cartledge, we had talked about Epaminondas of Thebes and the liberation of the Spartan slave uh, society, the Helots. One of the cities that they uh, the, those freed slaves created was Megalopolis, and I find it very kind of moving that Polybius is a descendant of Helots, that he's a descendant of Spartan slaves, and perhaps it's not surprising then that he's a historian of of republicanism. Um, as mm. our guest last uh, this week um, in um, so Josh Ober and Brooke Manville would say he's a he's really a historian of democracy. Uh, as much as de Tocqueville is. He's a theorist of democracy, um, not just of republicanism. So there you are, Quentin Polybus and Megalopolis. At that point, I began to realize that there was that you had gotten some intellectual juice out of the podcast, So, which you have since confirmed. You're a man of a lot of juice, and uh, <laughs> I've just been taking it to the juicer and sucking it up. Yes, I've been a devotee of the podcast for a few years now, Al, And I was listening to that Polybius episode, I guess, when it came out. And I instantly knew I had to read this book. You know, I went to just a crappy public school or what the British call government school. 
in New Jersey. And we certainly didn't have any ancient Greek, let alone, you know, Latin or anything. And I found it interesting in my 30s and 40s to find out about, you know, not only the ancient world, but how history writing was done. And, and I, when I read Polybius, I felt actually it's not Herodotus or Thucydides that's the first historian, it's Polybius. Why? Because he has the idea, not only of cause and effect that Thucydides has, but of a global system. Events in one part of the world began to shape events in other parts of the world. And it's not that reading that made me want to write about the global enduring disorder. I had already been writing it. Mm -hmm. But when I got my hands on the Polybius book, I realized the long intellectual pedigree of this idea. And he was writing about the first globalization of what he called the known world, which is that the Romans, starting after the Carthaginian Wars, began to conquer the known world, unify its institutions. And he said, well, why were they able to do this? Well, this is because they had a meritocratic republic with certain kinds of accountability, and they learned from their own decisions. When a military error was made, they commissioned a report, they fired the guy, and then they said, we have to do this differently next time. Um, what I tried to do in my book is say, why is Libya so disordered? Well, it has to do with structures in Libya, but it really has to do with the Italians being on the opposite side of the civil war as the French. And it has to do with the flows of finance. Why is it that Libyan semi-sovereign institutions are able to not pay foreign contractors and they win when they go to arbitration in Paris, which is just shocking? Oh, well, this is because international financial institutions don't work. Why don't they work? Oh, well, because we have all these tax havens and we have different laws in different jurisdictions, even within the West. And this Polybian idea of what is world history and how we can unpick how the world system functions, I find really, really inspiring. And in a way, I think that we need to teach history differently. And I know you try to focus on the teaching of history in your podcast. We need to focus on looking at the global system and how it changes. What are what are the rules and interactions and interplays between this? And Polybius should be our patron patron saint in that endeavor. So when people hear global system, as you just said, or international system, uh, many for many people, I'm not saying for me, of course, but their eyelids start to get a little heavy, <laughs> and they feel this is they start to make those little chomping motions with their mouth, and they feel overwhelming urge to sleep. Um, so why is the international, what is the international system? What's the global system? And why is it not boring, but actually important? Hysterical that you put it this way. One of the guys I most deeply respect in the Manhattan backgammon scene, I sent him my podcast and he said, Jason, this is great for falling asleep. <laughs> as soon as I hear, heard you talk about the global system, I'm literally out. <laughs> uh, but that's a guy who doesn't read the newspaper and, and may have never read a history book in his life. I think that for people who do read history books, what's exciting about the international system or the global system is that we can see it evolving over time, right? What was unique about the years 1815 to say 1991? Well, we had an Anglo-American hegemon really controlling the terms of trade. The British did something quite radical from the 18th century onward. They wanted to outlaw pirates and have free trade with everyone. That really hadn't been done. 
because before that there were the physiocrats and lots of mercantilists and they wanted a system whereby I trade and benefit from this area and I block you out and you trade with your area and you block me out. So the global system had changed to a free trade system. And what are the implications of that? And then of the gold standard, um, without getting into what were the things behind American empire, because that's, a, again, a whole other podcast. Happy to have it because I know you have a lot of knowledge and thoughts there. I posit that we are in a new era. Some people are calling it the post-Cold post War era. But those are people who are focusing too much, to my mind, on the Ukraine war. I believe that we started to be in the global enduring disorder as early as 2010 or 2011, and that the Arab Spring was able to happen as it did because we were already in the enduring disorder. So I have the controversial view, which is that Trump didn't disorder the international system. He came to power because the international system was already disordered. Yeah, you can see it. Trump and Brexit are symptoms of our disorder. Yes, they are mutually reinforcing symptoms, as is Bolsonaro and Putin and a lot of financial decisions that we have made. And, Jer- but and Jer- this- Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, in the- 100%. I, I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. This is what I think I, I said on the podcast. This is what my wife refers to as the party of the middle finger, uh, which is a, a majority in most places. Um, and, and they, people who hate each other, but actually are culturally, in terms of political culture, and I think social in other ways are aligned. It's very odd and very disturbing. Yes. I mean, this is horseshoe politics where the extreme left and extreme right horseshoe together. Yeah, They're yeah. not exactly the same, but um, – Yes, the rise of anti-system politics is one of the features of the global enduring disorder. I think another is major powers making decisions which are not about ordering their sphere of influence, but about disordering the globe. And I'll lay out one contrast. Give give an explanation of that. So if you believe that international systems and studying it are not this thing that puts you to sleep and is unbelievably boring and philosophical – I don't. I think it's unbelievably practical and relevant. We can contrast Stalin and Putin really simply. Stalin was an orderer. You might have disliked his order. Putin is a disorderer. How do you mean? There was no part on earth during the communist period that was unimportant enough for the Soviets to not want to export a fully formed package of order. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter if it was Cuba or it was Zaire. They wanted it to enter their kind of order, trade with it, have a certain kind of economic system, have a certain kind of political system. It even had an ideological system. Read these books. Here's Lenin. Here's Marx. Subsidize goods in this way. Do this. They exported an order. You can imagine a shipping container arriving from Leningrad, getting off the ports in lower, whatever, Baluchistan, and inside is the entire system, the books, the tools, kill these people first, kill them second, these go into camps. That changes depending on who's who's in charge of the International Department of the Communist Party. Um, but it's still there is it's it's a it's a shipping container. There are there are things hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. And it was an order. Yeah. If we look at Putin, Putin is fighting this war in Ukraine and he's also in two thousand and eight invaded Georgia and intervened in lots of other countries' politics. He doesn't have an order. He doesn't have an economic treatise. There's no, there's no treatise on 
Putinist economy. You know, it's kind of might makes right and steal as much as you can, but it's not a system. And if he would win in Ukraine, you know, God forbid, he's not going to order their economy to be similar to Putin's in Russia. He's a disorderer. He's happy to interfere in our elections to have not necessarily Trump win, but to have anti-system candidates, even Sanders or whoever, just to disorder us. He doesn't care if it's left-wing socialism or right-wing kind of uh, neo-populist kleptocracy. The cha- it's merely about disordering us. The disorder is the point. I mean, Correct. And, and, and just as increasingly, and this will get worse, the murder becomes the point. Um, there'll, there'll be that eventually murder takes over a regime and he's more than halfway there. Yes. And I think that if we look at this historically, we can see how novel this is. Whatever you think about the Kaiser, um, meaning Kaiser Wilhelm II here, or the Nazis mm-hmm. or Mussolini, these are bad mofos. But they had an order. As they called them at St. Anthony's College. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a brutal order. Yeah. But they wanted to change the way the world operated and impose this ruthless, brutal, and horrible order. It's an economic order. It's a racial order. But there's always various types of order, but it's always an order. Correct. And, and, And that's the way that imperial politics was done, you know, from the Congress of Berlin onward, Lusophone Africa was struggling with Francophone Africa, and they were competing for their spheres of influence, spheres of mercantile trade, and an order. And then the British or the Americans were trying to order the whole globe. And now we're in a position where it's not only Trump and Putin and Xi and Erdogan and Orban who want to disorder the near abroad, they want to disorder the globe. The Iranians Yes, people talk about a Shia crescent. They work with the Shia in southern Lebanon and Hezbollah, and they have their Alawite allies who are like heterodox Shia in Syria. And in Iraq, they essentially have a puppet state. But they're not really trying to order them in a coherent way. They're just trying to disorder the Middle East so people will be off their back and there won't be a successful democracy that could give an example that could overthrow them. And that really gets at why the Putins and Xi's and Ayatollahs choose disorder. Disorder is a system which is safe not only for autocrats, but for failing regimes who don't really believe in anything. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the Ayatollahs believe their stuff. And Putin knows that there is no ideological coherence to his regime. Of course not. It's just might-making right. So a disordered international system is one in which he can have regime survival. And I think it's a little different in the democratic world, which is that the more disorder there is in a place like Britain or America, the more there's perceived to be a migrant crisis or high inflation or chaos, people both biologically and psychologically are drawn to a strongman autocrat. And Hamilton wrote about this in the Federalist Papers, that the disorderer, the neo-populist, has no solutions. He's going to just try to screw up things and then ride the whirlwind and say, I'm the savior. But then when he gets into office, he's not going to build the wall. He's going to exacerbate the problems and then say, we have a huge migrant problem. I know I ran on this eight years ago and didn't fix it, but you really need me. Only I can fix it. Yeah. Well, that's right. Um, Back to Libya. Of course, 
in the last two weeks out of Derna, which I was refreshing my memory, uh, very important in the history of the United States Marine Corps and of American foreign policy. Uh, it was Derna was the target of the first American expeditionary force during Jefferson's uh, war against uh, Tripoli and against the Sultan of Tripoli, the, the first Barbary War. Um, so when they when they when the Marine Corps hymn sings "Shores of Tripoli," it's I think they're referring to the attack on Derna, aren't they? Hundred percent. But I just want to interrupt for some slight clarity. Sure. When we had our ship, the Philadelphia, seized in eighteen o three by pirates, and then we kind of botched the potential to have a deal. William Eaton was made the plenipotentiary. Yes, he was. And sent to Egypt to raise an army of mercenaries. Which he did. They invaded from the east with Karamanli rogue pretenders to the Karamanli throne, but they weren't sultans, they were bays. So they invaded the Bay of Tripoli because the Ottomans had lost power in this period and, and, and the Bay really ran things on behalf of the Ottomans. We conquered Derna in 1805, we meaning William Eaton and the Marine Corps. Ten, like and, 10, or, 10 or 15 Marines and a whole bunch of, I think, Armenians and Egyptian mercenaries, if I'm not wrong. A lot of Egyptian mercenaries, Egyptian, um, yeah. a few Armenians, a few Armenians uh, yeah. Cypriots, and yeah. some Cypriot Muslims. But this was a chance to have American empire because the rival Karamanlis actually wanted to overthrow the official Karmanli dynasty in Tripoli to march from Darna westward. They might have won, and then we would have had American imperialism as early as 1805, long before the Spanish-American War. But we didn't do that. We just got our sailors back. We even bizarrely paid an indemnity, even though we had won the conflict. But yes, that's the origins of the, the Marines and, and the first American kind of seizure of some place in the global south was the conquest of Tripoli yeah. in 1805. When people like fascinating to mention that almost no one has mentioned in the mainstream media. By the way, I know it's it's shocking. And when people, when Hamiltonians like to talk about Jefferson as an isolationist, anti-Navy president, I like to point out that what we, what you just talked about, you know, he's he contains multitudes. He contradicts himself. Um, that's just the way he rolls. But the Derna uh, now has uh, a terrible event. And is this simply the outcome of disorder that you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. This is this is yes. the inevitable it's, consequence of, of, of this disorder that's it's very tragic. I don't know anyone who has been killed, but many of my friends and colleagues, aunts and cousins and stuff have been killed. Libya is a small country, mm-hmm. only six million people, and it only has three or four very cosmopolitan cities, and those are Derna, Benghazi, Misrata, and Tripoli. And those are the places that have a lot of Turkish admixture of blood and then lots of Misratans going to Tripoli and Benghazi. So the point is, I know people there. I'm from there. Uh, The second prime minister of Libya in the kingdom period was having a Derna origin. What happened? Essentially, these dams that were built by a Yugoslav contracting company in the 1970s burst. I have a foreign policy article about this that maybe you could put in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and more people died on that one day, September 10th, 2023, than on any day in Libya's post-independence history or in any battle, even a multi-day battle, of the wars of post-Qaddafi succession. So this is a horrific tragedy. 
And it's predictable. Why is it predictable? Because the dams needed maintenance in 2012. Money was allocated for them, and then the maintenance never happened. Money was allocated again in 2020. It was earmarked. And then the letters of credit were likely not issued. This dysfunction gets at the whole nature of Libyan dysfunction. The Eastern government wasn't coordinating with the Western government about how the funds could be sent. Derna has long been beyond governance. It was controlled by Al-Qaeda-linked jihadis from 2012 to 2014. ISIS-linked ones took over in 2014. Al-Qaeda-linked groups reasserted authority from 2015 to late 2018. The rogue General Haftar, who runs the Libyan National Army, he took over in 2019. So Derna is not on good accords with the Eastern authorities or the Western authorities. And that's probably one of the reasons why the maintenance was never done on these dams. But the worst part, and the part that really makes me sick to my stomach, is it was known that people should evacuate. But likely the Libyan National Army said, no, we need to keep things under control. People should just shelter in place. It does seem that they told certain groups of people to evacuate from the extreme downtown by the cliff where the floodwaters were coming, but then they weren't believed because the LNA is so not trusted because it's a dictatorial, authoritarian, neo-populist force that works with the Wagner group. Um, It wasn't believed, so people didn't evacuate. You just see in microcosm all of the global enduring disorder playing out in Libya. Well, let's talk about the podcast and what it's uh, obvious. It's about all this every week. So as you're describing it, people are thinking, is this the audio version of Hemlock? I was, I listened to the first episode, thought I'll walk my dog listening to your podcast. Like, and like Socrates drinking the Hemlock and walking around his prison cell, eventually sometime somewhere around Fifeville Park, I'll pat, I'll drop dead. Uh, I, I won't feel my feet, and then my le- and then I'll just I'll be out and be done, and she'll just be there howling next to me. It's gonna be really sad, but it's not gonna be that bad, right? It's gonna be there's gonna be solutions are gonna be on offer, hope, yeah, something yeah. like that. I know you're just uh, trying to make a pleasantry, Al, but I think that that is uh, it is even an unfair connotation. Yes, it's called disorder. <laughs> it's out with Goldhanger Podcasts, makers of Rest is History and Rest is Politics primarily catering to a British audience, but with mostly American guests. So you analyze what that means. I think the British audiences want bigger picture ideas. So we look at a new challenge each week. And those challenges could be like climate change or neopopulism or cyberspace. And we explain why the disordered international system has made this challenge so worse. And then we unpack, you know, how we could make it better. This is the ordering the disorder part that every podcast closes with. And I think it's not only not audio hemlock, we have a lot more solutions on offer than comparable podcasts. Two of my friends who I tremendously respect produce podcasts called Power Corrupts and Doomsday Watch. They don't do solutions at all. And those are some of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. They just analyze a problem, tell a funny story about the problem, so-and-so kidnapped the Madagascarian lemur, and this is why it was able to happen. And then the show ends and the lemur is kidnapped. My podcast breaks down a challenge about, for example, kleptocracy and tax havens. And then we say something that you don't see coming in the Ordering the Disorder segment, which is that we don't even need Russia, China, and various African potentates to work with us to solve this problem. If the EU 
UK and British Commonwealth and America were on the same page. And we had similar standards about how money needs to be wired and how corporate taxes are paid and what it takes to set up a shell company. The problem would be 90% solved immediately. Mm -hmm. So this is like stuff that listeners may not realize we can do this. And when it comes to say cyberspace in our second episode of disorder, we hear from Asha Rangappa, a former FBI agent who's a CNN analyst. And she says, you know what, Jason, this was done with big tobacco. We just need lawsuits against these industries. And if we see Facebook and Twitter as essentially a industry, the algorithm promotes more extreme content. The algorithm itself drives people to extremes for clicks. If we sue them the way that Big Tobacco was sued, they can just change the algorithm and they can pay damages to help you know, promote civic space and education. And then there's also antitrust legislation differentiating the platform from the content. I think there are a lot of solutions out there. Mm-hmm. And I was fed up with what was on offer at various think tanks because there just aren't centrist solutions that are being offered to Western public. Well, so I, I we think, try to bring them to light. I think there are, but unfortunately, a dwindling few think tanks, both left and right. And that's part of this post, post, whatever the hell we're in, because people are less interested in policy. Even at, even at policy research places, they're less interested in policy solutions, which uh, makes me want to start cutting myself. But we'll leave that to one side for the moment. Yeah, because it's about how the global system works. And these days, even the think tanks need to get clips in the media and get clicks. So the, the, the think tank exists to get covered in the media and get bylines because that gets donor funded. Do you know what I mean? It's, oh, yeah. it's the same oh, no, no, cycle. Yeah. Absolutely. The same small donors that have affected political campaigns actually also affect small and medium donors, affect think tanks more than people and realize. What we're trying to do with the Disorder podcast, out, and I, I think that and, and, historically thinking listeners. And who is we? You've been saying we, comrade, but who, who, okay. who's, who's we? <laughs> <laughs> so – This is my idea in that I came up with the Global Enduring Disorder concept. I created Global Enduring Disorder Limited, which (laughs) co-produces this podcast. But I have an amazing producer, this gentleman, George McDonough, who's made a lot of top UK podcasts. We have a co-host, Alexandra Hall Hall, who was British ambassador to Georgia, but has also been a British diplomat embedded with the Pentagon. Did you say top of I, the high you, commission you, in India? Could you repeat her name? Does she have a hyphenated name Correct. that's the same two names? Yes. This is not a satire. This is not a joke. But I know it's true. It's true. No. She's delightful. She's, she's, she's great. a posh British woman yeah. with the name of Hall Hall. Yeah. 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 Um, again, I feel like we've told too many jokes, so I won't digress into how they came about, but. Alex is great, and she brings the on the ground, inside the belly of the beast, how, you know, the cookie is crumbled and the sausage is made aspect of policymaking, Mm -hmm. but then also a degree of levity and a more positive feminine touch in terms of how how we can do things differently and how we can handle the personalities. Um, Another person in our cinematic universe is David Patrick Karakos. He's a top... British journalist. She writes for the Daily Mail. He's also an editor at Unheard, which is a British online newspaper. And he goes to places like Ukraine and Iraq for us. And we interview him about things that are going on there. He's our roving correspondent. Awesome. We have also a friend of the podcast, Arthur Snell, who is 
a famous British podcaster, but he was also a British diplomat with ambassadorial rank. And he talks about things like climate change and geopolitics. And we hear from all these people in a very structured way each week about each new challenge. Mm-hmm. That's, that's wonderful. It's, it's fantastic setup. Um, I wish I had a, a roving reporter for this podcast, but the, uh, the physics just don't allow it. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's conclude by talking about Georgia. Now, Alex, she was ambassador to Georgia uh, at one point. Is that perhaps Correct. how you met originally? It is not. It is not. That's a complete accident. Um, I've been involved in Georgia since I think before Alex was the ambassador there. Um, again, my stories always come off on some bizarre tangent. Uh, I was on the wine team, both at Oxford and Cambridge, the blind wine tasting team. Wow. And I competed in the blind wine tasting varsity match. There's glory. And the losers of the match got reached out to by the Georgian embassy to discover the birthplace of wine. The winners of the match got reached out to by Paul Roger to go to Epernay in Champagne. <laughs> so although I lost the match, I won the war because in Georgia, I was on a trip of journalists. And can you guess, Alex, what was the prize for the journalist's trip sponsored by the Georgian Ministry of Tourism that I won? What did I get for writing the best article? A bottle of Paul Roger. No, that would be funny. The Georgians would not give away non-Georgian wine. No, I didn't think but they would. The, the, the person who wrote the best article for the journalist trip sponsored by the Georgian National you know, Tourism Company was participation in next year's free trip with the journalists. <laughs> so I got to have the same drunk Ukrainian journalist drinking vodka at 11 a.m. on our bus the next year that I had had the previous year But I realized that Georgia, in addition to being the birthplace of wine, you know, it has sun and sea and mountains and beaches, some of the most fascinating and undiscovered historic monuments, you know, Jason and the Golden Fleece and um, amazing struggles between Safavids and Turks and Crusaders, fascinating country. Birthplace of Joseph Uh, Stalin. I mean, what's not to like? Birthplace of amazing museum in Gori. People want to go there. That's Stalin's birthplace. Um, I tried to create a company called the Birthplace of Wine Experience. It's really moribund. No one takes these tours. But if you want to discover with kind of a high-end wine tasting perspective of why does wine aged in clay pots taste the way that it does, different than wine, which has been in stainless steel or oak, and how the aging process and the amount of skin contact that the Georgians use makes the wine taste the way that it does. My company is really the only one globally that focuses on explaining that through uh, wine tours rather than just go here, taste this, go here, taste that. Mm-hmm. So in, in the States, who's importing Georgian wine? If for, for interested uh, listeners in Illinois and Virginia and God knows where else, all the 50 states. Where, sure. Who's an importer? There is essentially one player in this space. Mm-hmm. His name is Mamuka Cicerelli. He runs something called Georgian Wine House, but he is also the head of the American Georgian Business Council. Um, Georgian Wine House is in Maryland, but you can get their wines 
uh, shipped to you. And they have various other regional wine uh, stores that work with Georgian Winehouse. If you ever go to the nation's capital, you should go to Supra Restaurant. Supra. It is at 11th and M. It is the oh, best yes. Georgian just, restaurant just in heard the about Western Hemisphere. Pl- just heard about this place, yeah. Absolutely best Georgian restaurant in the Western Hemisphere. And you can discover there the way in which Georgian cuisine has Eastern European elements like dill on the fish. It has Mongolian and Eastern elements like soup dumplings. Mm -hmm. And it has Arab and Turkish elements having to do with how the kebab and the bread is made. And it mixes them together with Iranian elements like pomegranate juice and sauce on a fish. So it's an unbelievable crossroads, Georgia is. And I just fell in love with it as a place. And then only later I realized, wow, it's so important that we make sure that they get to join the EU and NATO and that we keep the Russians out. Otherwise, there's not going to be a lot of food uh, enjoyment, uh, at least not in Georgia itself. Yeah, it reminds me of the old Cold War joke in D.C., lose a country, gain a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Many fine Vietnamese restaurants, many fine Cuban restaurants, many fine Afghan restaurants, Nicaraguan restaurants, you know, lose a country, gain a restaurant. But no, it, it should be gain a country, gain a restaurant. Well, it, we, I was thinking Georgia has turned to get invaded, steal a cuisine or add a cuisine. <laughs> I should say add, but that's kind of how it worked. Okay. One last, final question to you before we close out. I've been wondering about this question for years and you are the person to answer it because I don't. Um, I do not trust Professor Wikipedia about this. The Georgian alphabet is it based on the, which is a beautiful, sinuous, twisty alphabet? Is it really based on the sinuousness of grapevines? Oh man. You really set that up so beautifully, and I'm not the person to answer this question. However, I, I must, I I must li- continue to live in ignorance. Both in Georgia and at the U.S. Embassy and British embassies to Georgia, I'll get back to you. I, I think the answer has to be no. I think that's right. You know, they have their alphabet going back to the Christianization of Georgia, and Georgia was the second country to, as a country, embrace Christianity after Armenia, and their alphabetic tradition is quite ancient. Mm-hmm. However, they have three different scripts. And just like Hebrew letters, which are even more ancient, they've changed over time. You know, that modern Hebrew is written in the square script, just like with modern Arabic. If you go back and you look at the Quran, the Quran was written on runes and the letters were done differently. So although Georgian has a continuous uh, alphabetic tradition, the way in which we perceive the non majuscule meaning the non-capital letters, the lowercase letters, they are written differently now than they were in the early Christian period. Um, but I'm going to take a wild-ass guess, which is that the alphabet does not derive from how the curlicues of grapevines Go. Well, even though the Georgians may have a story to that effect. That's, that's been my hypothesis for years. But um, my guest today has been Jason Pack. He's the author of Libya and the Enduring Global Disorder, the co-host of the new podcast Disorder, co-produced by Gohanger, and international man of mystery, also historically thinking superfan. Jason, you know th- it. thanks for being with us today. 
Wow, it was fun. Thank you, Al. Can't wait to have you on my show. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 